We're underway, John. You ready? I'm ready. Glenn Laurie here, The Glenn Show. At uh, Patreon, I beg your pardon, it used to be Patreon. It's at uh, glennlaurie.substack.com. That's the newsletter. And it's at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Glenn Lowry Show. I'm with John McWhorter. He's my regular conversation partner with the Black guys wherever we go. And, uh, and we're back here for our biweekly. Hey, John, uh, what's up, man? I don't know, Glenn. There's a lot. Um, a lot of race issues in the news, especially over the past week. And Indeed. a lot of it is coming so fast, I can barely keep up with it. Um, you know, there's Whoopi Goldberg, there's Ilya Shapiro, there's Joe Rogan, quote unquote, you N word. Oh, yeah. And Spotify issue. There's affirmative action coming up on the Supreme Court. All sorts of things are are up. And I think we're supposed to have opinions about all these things. Why don't we take them uh, in sequence? Ilya Shapiro, affirmative action, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Joe Rogan. Uh, by the way, we are the black guys. So we're, you know, it's like we're, it's our obligation. It's our beat. Uh, we, we have to comment here. And I see that you're using your platform at the New York Times to good effect, although I haven't seen you write about Whoopi Goldberg yet. Perhaps that's in the works. But a piece on Ilya Shapiro, pieces on what you think the Supreme Court ought to do about affirmative action, uh, what you think universities ought to do about legacy affirmative action. Uh, so uh, we're primed. We're primed for this. Ilya Shapiro, do you want to explain it or should I? Well, you're, you're very good at the summer explanation. So you, you start on him. Okay. So President Biden has announced, he announced during the campaign that it was his intention if he had the privilege of appointing a justice to the U.S. Supreme Court to select a black woman. Uh, and uh, he has indeed uh, been endowed with that privilege, as Justice Breyer has announced his retirement at the end of this term. So now the question is, who will Biden appoint? And there's a debate about that. He's indicated a black woman, so there's a lot of speculation. This or that federal judge who are black women are, are being uh, discussed. Ilya Shapiro, now let me see if I get this exactly right, is a legal scholar, formerly at the Cato Institute, a well-known right-of-center think tank, who has been recruited to head up a a uh, newly formed center on constitutional law at the Georgetown Law Center, which is a very prestigious law school. Um, he tweeted, uh, prior to actually taking up his responsibilities, I think he's incoming, I'm not sure exactly what the timing is, but he tweeted in reference to this Supreme Court appointment of Joseph Biden, that we were going to end up with a lesser Black woman. That's a quote, a lesser black woman on the court than the candidate uh, Sri Srinivasan. Again, I hope I get this name correct, who uh, Ilya Shapiro prefers, who is currently the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, the D.C. Circuit is the uh, second most powerful court in the land, and it is uh, the place from which many Supreme Court justices have been recruited in the past uh, and uh, is a step away from the Supreme Court. And Srinivasan is, uh, in Ilya Shapiro's estimation, an intellectual powerhouse who is, uh, quote unquote, the best appointment to the court and who would, according to Shapiro, also check some diversity boxes for the Biden administration in that he's Asian and would be the first Asian appointed to the court. Shapiro's tweets, of course, uh, engendered controversy. We would be saddled, that's not his words, that's my word, with a lesser Black woman. That is his word. And that's been taken to be an outrageous, racist statement. Uh, the dean of the Georgetown Law Center has publicly uh, reprimanded Shapiro for that statement and has declared the statement does not reflect the values of the Georgetown Law Center. Uh, students and alumni and other faculty at the Georgetown Law Center have expressed their outrage. There's been consternation. There's been demands for Shapiro's, uh, the rescinding of his appointment. And in fact, 
his occupation or the position has been suspended or delayed until an investigation can be undertaken uh, of, uh, I'm not sure what exactly, uh, I assume, to determine whether or not he's a racist or has values that are inconsistent with Georgetown Lawson. I'm not, I'm not sure on all of that. Help me out. Fill in the blanks wherever I leave it out. But brouhaha, brouhaha at Georgetown Law Center in virtue of a conservative legal scholar pending an appointment at the law center who has disparaged the intellectual ability of black women prospective uh, appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court by comparing them unfavorably to, um, in this case, an Asian uh, uh, prominent uh, uh, jurist. That's the best I can do, John, off the top of my head. <laughs> that was that was brilliant. And to Glenn and editors, I am going to go unplug my router and plug it back in because if there's a problem on this, we've got to fix this because I can only understand half of what Glenn is saying. Glenn, I'm going to go do that and I'll be back in minutes. The whole thing has to come back on and I'm going to see if that's what the problem is. Um, I don't okay, want well, this to well, continue. I know this is important, window. but I just, let's, I can't hear you and we won't be able to have a good conversation. So yeah, don't close the window, back. John. Don't close it. Yeah, just leave it as it is. Go ahead and do what you're going to do. I'll leave it. Yeah. Back in 10 when the router comes back on. Okay, guys, I don't know what to say about this, uh, but we're, we're going to have to roll with the punches here. I'm using Zoom and not Riverside because we were on Riverside and also had problems with the connection. Um, my suggestion is that we get somebody over to John's place uh, to look over his system thoroughly and uh, update whatever needs updating. But if anyone can hear this, this is the you know raw underside of how the Glenn Show gets produced. It's it's not always smooth. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's uh, catch as catch can, and we and we do the best we can. While I have your attention, I might as well report to you on my morning, which has been a very good Sunday morning over here in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, I got some terrific news, I can't tell you because it's not yet a secret, about a wonderful honor that has befallen me, which I cannot detail any further, but if you stay tuned, you'll learn about it in due course. Um, and I did some great work on the memoir. I am working on the memoir, and I really did advance the ball this morning. Back and forth with my editor um, on some of the gritty details uh, on the memoir and uh, having a lot of exciting ideas and reviewing some old material uh, and um, just, uh, just feeling it, just really feeling that I'm touching home with this project that has lingered for half a decade. Uh, I've been on this since 2015, this is 2022, so that's two thirds of a decade. Uh, but we're getting there, we're getting there. Um, extremely happy about the reaction to a recent audio note posted at glennlowry.substack.com uh, called The Call of the Tribe. It's a reminiscence on my part of an incident that occurred in my youth uh, when I was 22 years old, um, where I and a friend of mine, a kid called Witty, a black kid, but he looked white, went to a Black Panther Party rally and found ourselves in a situation. The brothers at the Black Panther Party rally resented the presence of a white boy in their midst. And yet Witty thought of himself as not a white boy, but as a black guy, as a brother himself, because, well, you know, it's a complicated story. You have to listen to the audio note. And there I was with my friend and, you know, I'm obviously black and we're in this meeting with the radicals and they're uh, questioning the racial authenticity of my best friend. And the question is, what do I do in the face of that challenge? And uh, you have to listen to the, the audio note to find out what I do. But fertile, very, very fertile ground. And we put this up, check it out, um, at glennlowry.substack.com. 
We put this up and you should see the loving tributes that have come back from listeners who were so grateful for the raw honesty, for the eloquence, for the brilliance, quote unquote, their words of the language, uh, who can't wait to see the memoir. If this is a sample of what you're doing, Lowry, we can't wait to see the finished product. So yeah, maybe I'm teasing you guys a little bit with this, but I'm also in the back and forth in the feedback of this uh, long project, the agonizing process of producing this book. The back and forth, I want you to know it's, it's, it's uh, fortifying me, it's uh, motivating me. Uh, I find great deal of gratification in it, and I understand this is important work, so we're gonna keep at it. Uh, Supposed to be Glenn and John. It's just Glenn because we're waiting for John to come back. Technical issues, technical details. I feel like a radio announcer who's been uh, caught uh, in uh, an unusual situation where the program of record that was intended uh, has been suspended for some reason. And he or she um, has to improvise. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm feeling time until my friend John comes back. Um, let me review our agenda for this conversation, assuming that it's going to happen. Um, we want to talk about, in effect, affirmative action and meritocracy. Uh, there are a number of uh, pending issues on the uh, front burner of uh, the uh, policy um, community here. Uh, one of them is uh, Biden's appointment of a justice to the U.S. Supreme Court, an associate justice who will replace the retiring uh, justice, Stephen Breyer. Uh, Biden has committed himself to appointing a black woman to that position. Um, and controversy has erupted over some of the reaction to Biden's commitment. Uh, and the other is the Supreme Court case, the University of North Carolina and Harvard University, both being sued by students for fair admissions uh, over their affirmative action policies. And uh, another is Whoopi Goldberg, who's been suspended. I'm just reviewing, John, the bidding. I, I don't see your image uh, in the camera screen, but I assume it will come in due course. Are you seeing yourself? John's not yet fully back. So uh, Whoopi Goldberg suspended uh, from The View, ABC, I believe, uh, because of a comment that she made to the effect that uh, the Holocaust was not a racial incident. Uh, the Holocaust was not a racial uh, phenomenon. Uh, I, I wish that I had the quote in front of me. I don't, but everybody can look it up. Uh, the other is that Joe Rogan, under pressure at Spotify, because uh, old uh, clips of him using the N-word have surfaced. Uh, John and I will talk more about that. Um, so there he is. John. Here I am. Okay. You are not going to be held responsible for my soliloquy holding forth to the microphone and the camera while you were readjusting your connection. But I expect that we may actually use it. It's me, not you. It's me. You are not responsible. I'm announcing to the world that you are not responsible. We're back and we're okay. ready to go. I'm with John McWhorter. He's at Columbia University. He's the author of Woke Racism. Um, and I always forget the subtitle, but it's something about how uh, religion has uh, betrayed Black America. Uh, it's a bestseller already, isn't it, John? Um, it it makes the list and it has sold almost 100,000 copies I'm if call you count that a all success. the different media. Congratulations, John. It's I actually, wish it's definitely around. I think um, predictably there's a certain kind of person who thinks that it's basically just a book that's teaching white people that it's okay to be racist, but I don't get that feeling from the feedback that I'm getting, and I certainly have not advertised it directly to the right wing, not that the right wing is inherently racist, but I have tried to aim the book at roughly people of our you know, our world who are, you know, left of center. So yeah, I think it's doing its job. I'm happy about it. It's a great book. Everybody should go out and buy it. It's going to have an impact on this debate for years to come. Uh, John McWhorter is a player. Uh, and I really think he ought to stop worrying about what people are saying about what other people are thinking about what it is that he's writing. They're always going to be saying that uh, these haters 
on the left yeah. are constantly going to try to discredit with ad hominem argument uh, the interventions of people like yourself when they are unable to actually mount rebuttals of the things that you're saying. By so the you're, way, Glenn, some, something else yeah. people are often saying, this is going to be very quick. Behind yeah. me is a poster from St. John's University. St. John's University has a great poster with a whole bunch of good books stacked up, and I've always yeah. just liked the poster aesthetically. Yeah. I've learned that there are people out there who think that I'm trying to imply that I went there. By no means. I did not go. I honestly don't remember why I have the poster. Somebody sent it to me. But that is not supposed to indicate that I went to that wonderful school. I went to Simons Rock Early College, and then I went to Rutgers. I did not go to St. John's. But I'm not sitting in front of this trying to imply that I did. That's something else people say, and I just want to ward that one off. Well, so, I've been seeing that poster in your background for a long time. For years. It, it never occurred to me that you were representing that you had gone to St. John's, but I don't understand why a person would lie about having gone to St. John's if they were a graduate of Rutgers University or whatever. Is there a discernible difference in the prestige associated with one or the other? Yeah, St. John's has that wonderful great books curriculum. And um, it, it is a very special Oh, St. John's College, not St. John University in New York City. That's a university. Okay, yeah, St. John's College. St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland is what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I, I love the poster, but I'm not trying yeah. to imply that I went there. I just like the poster aesthetically. So, yeah, some people who graduated from there, they ask me whether I went, and that's nice. But then I've learned that some people are thinking that I'm trying to make a statement by always doing these Zooms in front of it. No, it's just that this is a hot place in my house in terms of reception. It's comfortable, and that happens to be there. So, well, yeah. racism has sold over 100,000 copies, people. And I want to be John uh, McWhorter's investment uh, portfolio manager and just get some <laughs> small fees, just half of 1%, John. <laughs> Congratulations on your success. Well, well deserved. I will just say this much by way of, uh, of uh, you know, horning in on your, on your, uh, your well-deserved uh, accolades. Many of the arguments in woke racism were tested here at the Glenn Show and back and forth between yourself and myself over all of these various incidents and issues and so on. So true. He honed that sword that he's wielding now right here at the Glenn Show. I'm proud of it. I that. do not deny it. That is definitely, there is a lot of us in that book, no doubt. No doubt. Today's show sponsor is The Spectator Magazine. Having been founded in 1828, it's the longest running magazine in the world. The mission statement they sent me says they believe that journalism must be witty and insightful and that ideas should be discussed without the constant threat of cancellation. They're neither right or left wing and consider their mission to convey intelligence, not ideology. They believe that life is bigger than politics, which is why the magazine covers arts, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. The slogan they use to convey this is, the spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. So sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free spectator hat. Just use offer code Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Go to spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and use offer code Glenn. I've been aware of the spectator for many years and feel comfortable saying that even if you disagree with its politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. Their contributors include many prominent and sometimes controversial authors from Christopher Buckley, to P.J. O'Rourke, to Douglas Murray, to Slavoj Žižek, from the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture to cultural cuisine, The Spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of The Spectator for free, plus a free Spectator hat when you subscribe at spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer. Use offer code Glenn at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and offer code Glenn. What are you saying about Ilya Shapiro? People need also to understand that John McWhorter writes twice weekly, a column of 1500 words or so in the New York Times, which you can find just like this 
And uh, he's never failing to be interesting, never failing to be provocative and insightful. Uh, and he's written about the subject. I want to know what you're saying, John. Well, you know, on Ilya Shapiro, it comes down to something very simple. About four years ago, a political science professor named Christine Fair wrote a really mean graphic tweet calling for men in Congress who were supporting Justice Brett Kavanaugh to be castrated. A really nasty, colorful, cartoonish tweet about what should be done to those men. And there was a certain uproar. Certain students were uncomfortable. But Georgetown, you know, came out with this, you know, this nice, noble statement about how they're not responsible for what their professors say and that they are committed to their being controversial and even disturbing ideas out in the public sphere. So Christine Fair still works at Georgetown. Well, what Ilya Shapiro said, where he free, he comes up with this, this locution of lesser black woman, which is extremely clumsy and maybe even a little bit hostile. Well, that's that's disturbing, that's controversial, that's uncomfortable. And you can tell that Georgetown is, you know, poised to dismiss him. They suspended him and okay, maybe they'll decide that everything's okay, but a perfectly natural outcome, we know the tenor of our times, is that he's not allowed to take his position. That would be extremely inconsistent. Why is it that one professor is allowed to talk about removing the testicles of men who have a certain opinion about a certain Supreme Court justice, while another person is not allowed to say lesser black woman and imply that all of the black women who are under consideration are underqualified. As icky as that is, and I get the feeling Ilya Shapiro would not be delightful to talk with about race. He, see, he sounds unfiltered, <laughs> hostile, you know, as unpleasant as that is. Why does he get fired? And of course, the idea is that when it comes to race, all bets are off. That if it's about race and certain black people are offended and certain black students say they feel unsafe, then the person has to be canned. And frankly, to be monotonous, woke racism, et cetera, that's religion. That's treating racism as if it's a matter of some sort of heresy. And I don't, I don't think we need it. But the idea seems to be that black people need to be protected to that extent. But frankly, if we're that delicate, there's something wrong with us and there isn't anything wrong with us. And I think Georgetown needs to be consistent and let that obnoxious man do his job and teach, which he probably does very well. That is my opinion about that. So I'm not defending him. I think lesser black woman is clumsily worded. I don't think that he meant quite that. But if you look at his record, you can tell that, you know, he probably wouldn't want to have dinner with him, but he should keep his job. <laughs> I might actually want to have dinner with him, John. He might actually be interesting. Randy Barnett, Professor Randy Barnett, a very distinguished constitutional law professor, is the um, is the uh, intellectual leader of this originalist school of thought in terms of constitutional interpretation at Georgetown, which this center would likely further, and which uh, Ilya Shapiro would have been the executive director of, or something to that e uh, equivalent functional role. Um, and it's an entirely respectable, interesting uh, school of uh, thought about interpreting the Constitution. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I know enough to know that uh, the original intent of the framers is a doctrine that people like uh, Antonin, the late Antonin Scalia uh, championed, uh, and that it's disagreed with by other people who have a more flexible idea about how to read the Constitution in the 21st century, a document written in the 18th century, maybe original uh, originalism as the doctrine for interpretation isn't the way to go. That's a perfectly respectable argument that could entertain me for a couple of hours over dinner uh, any day of the week. Would I agree with Ilya Shapiro? I don't know. Possibly. I want to say the thing about lesser black women, though. I mean, what is he saying? He's saying there's, uh, in, there's something called intellectual candle power in my field, constitutional law. When I look over the horizon and think about who it would be great to see on the Supreme Court, by the way, Srinivasan is not a um, right-wing conservative, uh, the, the, the man that he favors. Uh, when I look over the horizon and I, and I try to stand to see who might be available, I see somebody who really stands out who I think would be terrific, not because he agrees with me, but because the quality of his mind is exceptional. This is what he's saying. And he's saying, I don't see a black woman that I think is up to that level of, of intellectual heft. 
that you put on the Supreme Court. Now, that could be wrong. I don't know if it's right or wrong. Is it racist? Um, uh, frankly, I don't think so. Uh, I, I think, I think uh, it's a delicate thing here. It's a really delicate thing. We're talking at the very, very right tail of human performance here. We're, we're talking about the top 10 minds or something like that, that you would make that list and there not be a black woman on it. I don't know if that's true or false, but it could be true. It, it wouldn't be a denigration of anybody to say that it was true. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a bluff thing going on here. You have your religion, I have my bluffing. People are daring you to actually get down the cases and compare the qualities involved. They're daring you to do that. And they're going around with a kind of a bluster. Are you saying that, that black women can't be brilliant? Is what they're saying. Uh, there have been no black winners of the Nobel Prize in economic science. That's my field. None. They've been given those prizes since the 1960s. <laughs> That's a lot of prizes. I just need to make a correction to the statement um, I made during the uh, conversation with John McWhorter. Uh, at some point, I say that uh, no Blacks have ever won the Nobel Prize in economics, and I meant to say no Black Americans had ever done so. <laughs> it's well known that Sir Arthur Lewis, uh, born on St. Lucia in 1915 and honored by the British crown with a knighthood. He was a longtime professor at Princeton. It's well known that he won the prize in 1979. I know this because he was uh, someone who I had more than a casual relationship with and was very honored uh, to be able to learn from him, a black man who had won the Nobel Prize, but he was St. Lucia, not American. So um, I apologize for the error. What does that say? Is, is there an inside uh, rigged game that fixes the prize giving so that brilliant black people are overlooked? Or is it the case that in the history of the Nobel uh, Prize, the uh, Swedish uh, bank prize in honor of Alfred Nobel before somebody gets after me about this is not really a Nobel Prize. It's a very, very significant award. It comes with hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash payout and it has great uh, prestige associated with it and no black person has won it. If someone says uh, that uh, that's an outcome that is deserved because none have yet achieved a degree of distinction that would warrant to uh, be honored in such a way, have they said a racist thing? To me, what's at stake here is the relativizing of standards of judgment of extraordinary intellectual achievement in the interest of racial egalitarianism by carrying this trump card, which is. If you don't put a black person at the head of the queue, you're saying that black people are inferior. Which, if it is allowed to prevail, will lead to the watering down of the ability to make judgments of any kind whatsoever uh, as between people, because the uh, ex-ante uh, commitment is that we got to get a proportionate representation of all of the various interested identity groups within our circle of uh, excellence. Uh, so as not to seem to be denigrating the value of the humanity of any person. And uh, I think that's a problem. Yeah, the, the sad thing is that there are many people who really do believe that. They really do think if there haven't been any Black people, then there's something called racism afoot. And to the extent that you talk about standards, they think that we need to change what standards are. And to the extent that you interrogate them as to what you would elevate instead of the things that we elevate now, you hear words like holistic and you hear words about intuition. And I genuinely think, as I've said before, that the general idea is that for black people, excellence is supposed to have something to do with charisma and a relationship to a rhythmic beat. And that that's the same as discovering something about the Higgs boson or, or something like that. And I think that's condescending, anti-intellectual and frankly, just lazy with Shapiro, though, it's, it's, it's a hazy line. And I frankly have very little interest in this Olympics of figuring out whether something is racist or not. To me, the whole business of is it racist or not 
if engage beyond a certain point implies that I'm supposed to care, that that I'm so weak that I have to know exactly how much racism is operating exactly where. And to me, that feels like getting into the down position. It's not compatible with any sense of black strength or just basic human resilience to be that obsessed. It's like we're supposed to be these bloodhounds sniffing out, you know, degrees of racism. I, beyond a certain point, it's a, that's a sport. But with Shapiro, I actually did a little bit of something you could call research before I wrote that piece because I was out of my lane. And I thought, okay, what is it about Srinivasan that is so objectively capital here? Because I thought, I was thinking along your lines, if he's got this incredible record and there doesn't happen to be a black woman who does, I took him to mean they're going to choose a black woman and that black woman is going to be lesser than Srinivasan because she hasn't done X, Y, and Z. Right. That would not be a racist statement. That may just be the way things happen to be at this point, especially at this point in history. You know, the, the, There being a slate of black women of that level of achievement on the bench, that many is a, mostly a post-civil rights thing. Yes, you know, Constance Baker Motley, yes. But now that there's so many, that's new. So yeah, maybe more time has to go by. But I asked two people. There's your there's your research. But I had you know actual extended exchanges with two people who are familiar with the law. And I said, is there a reason? Is there something that Srinivasan has done? Is there a slate of books? Is it a bunch of articles? Is it some demonstration? Opinions more likely than not, right? It yeah, would be his opinions. Both of them told me no. They said that they didn't understand where Shapiro was getting the idea that uh -huh. Srinivasan is the one. And that made me think, okay, is it that he just immediately sees a black woman and thinks, well, she couldn't be as good as this South Asian person just kind of because? Now, maybe there's something Shapiro knows that I don't because, you know, he's, you know, he's a legal person and I'm in a different place. But it's not obvious it's not as if he's this sterling figure with these incredible credentials that, you know, dwarf anything that these black women have done. It's not that at all, which makes me think, is there some sort of bias in his mind? Does he kind of just assume? And to be honest, Glenn, you know, he might. That doesn't concern me the way I think it's supposed to. I'm not insulted. I've got my own work to do. And I think that plenty of black people would feel the same way if he's a racist. Who cares as far as I'm concerned? If he's not good, it's just not an interesting question to me. But it is a little little, little awkward that he does seem to just assume that Srinivasan is better, maybe just because of where he is. He's chief. Is, is that the reason? But He's know, a chief what, judge of the circuit court, and I don't know the reason why Ilya Shapiro thinks that uh, Srinivasan would be a superior appointment to the likely black woman that bought Biden. self-evident. Yeah, um, I, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, I think you're putting your finger on something important, which is that what do you mean by good? What are the criteria for deciding what excellence is? That should be a part of the debate. The lived experience of a black woman jurist might bring something to the court that wouldn't uh, otherwise be there and that would be valuable to the overall uh, workings of the court that wouldn't necessarily be reflected in how many law review articles that person published, if that's your criterion. A lot of people who are not law professors in the uh, in the uh, mold of uh, Antonin Scalia, who was a very distinguished academic lawyer before he came to the court, or Robert Bork, whose ill-fated nomination to the court was rejected by the Senate, but who was widely regarded as an absolutely stunningly brilliant mind. Uh, that's not the only set of criteria that you have for bringing to the court. So um, I think, but I think that think has so. to be said. But if Shapiro thinks so, that doesn't make him a racist. If he thinks that if you're not Robert Bork, you shouldn't be on the court, that's narrow, but it doesn't make him a bigot. I'll definitely give him that. Yeah. Uh, Dahlia Litwick has a piece in Salon about uh, the opinions of some of the women who are being uh, on the sh put on the shortlist, Black women jurists on the shortlist for Biden. And she parses it in ways that I think are worth taking into account, where she's saying, you know, there's a lot of different dimensions to what's going on when people are writing opinions and you can't necessarily judge uh, the fitness of a person for the court by just ticking off, you know, the number of footnotes to Harvard Law Review articles and so forth. She also says there's another factor here, which is that if you look at the Supreme Court over history, a vast majority of the justices have uh, been educated at either the Harvard Law School or the Yale Law School. What's wrong with getting out of that little 
box? Are you telling me that there are people at, I don't know, the University of Illinois or the University of Michigan or the Ohio State University Law School or the, you know, whatever, who are not fit for the court? You can only get on the court if you're in this little tight circle and that by doing a Black woman appointment, it affords the president an opportunity to expand beyond this clique of uh, elite Ivy League law school. So she's saying there's a kind of, I don't know what, democratic small d dimension to an appointment. The label Black woman stands in for a lot of things, not just for a race or for a gender, but also potentially for a broadening of the selective uh, uh, net to include people who might not otherwise be uh, really, and that might not necessarily be a bad thing. So, so there's a lot going on here uh, in this debate about merit meritocracy, excellence, and selectivity with respect to the Supreme Court. But where do you come down, John, on the issue of Biden announcing, because here's one of the critiques, he announces in advance, I'm going to appoint a Black woman to the Supreme Court, when he, what he might have done is kept that to himself and then appointed a Black woman to the Supreme Court and said, I went out and I found the best person I could find. Here she is. Uh, the difference between those two, this is another thing that Ilya Shapiro said. He said, there'll always be an asterisk, okay? Meaning everyone will look at it and say, oh, well, that appointment was, well, you know, we know he had to have a black woman. It needn't have been so if he had not made a big deal out of appointing a black woman in the first place. He did that, it's arguable, for political reasons, in order to get black people to vote for him in the South Carolina Democratic primary in preference to uh, Bernard Sanders so that he could be the nominee of the party in 2000 uh, in preference to Bernard Sanders by promising them a black woman to the Supreme Court and a woman as vice president. He was gonna make history on both, on both fronts and seems to be poised to do so. But that kind of pandering comes at the expense, doesn't it, of the candidate who ends up being appointed when you could have appointed the same person without making that announcement and uh, not have cast doubt over the uh, whether or not when you selected, you were selected for the very best person you could find. I'm not, you know, we, we touched on that last time. I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that I see the difference because even if he had let it be a surprise, there would still be that asterisk because it is a highly particular choice in terms of what the composition of the court is now. There's only one black Supreme Court justice, and let's face it, he won there's an asterisk there, and he's seen as peculiar because he's a hardcore conservative and Republican. Many people think he's not really black in that regard. And so there hasn't been a quote unquote real black person since Thurgood Marshall. I think both so of those points being, are ridiculous. Excuse me for interrupting, but I yes. strongly disagree. <laughs> yes, but that no is asterisk, how and he's definitely black. Just wanted to get on the record. Forgive right. me for interrupting. <laughs> I agree completely, but you know how you know everybody else sees it. Yeah, I know how and they so see it. Her being black would be considered really, you know, that's that's advanced. And then also that she's a woman and then also that she's black and a woman. And so even if he didn't say anything and then, you know, all of a sudden he appoints this black woman, we would be having the exact same conversation and Ilya Shapiro would have written the same tweet. I'm not sure I see that much of a difference. It would have been a big surprise and people would have assumed that, you know, he was quotaizing anyway. Assuming so, is know. one thing and knowing is another. Yeah. Assuming is he one thing. Knowing. But it would have been, he would have been coming from the same place and everybody would have known it. I don't have any problem with that issue of representation. I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a, I don't know how real it is in terms of what sorts of judgment she's going to make as opposed to her fellow, you know, left-leaning justices, but still there's something to be said for the optics. Symbolism matters. So yeah, it's fine with me as long as she is qualified. And it doesn't look like there's any problem here with qualification, especially considering, you know, the variety of things that Supreme Court justices have brought. Clearly, these these women who are being considered would belong on the bench. And there you go. After everybody is, belongs on the bench, then maybe you start thinking about the optics. This is how affirmative action is supposed to go, as opposed to the way it actually goes in terms of admissions, for example. Notice I'm doing this transition. So... <laughs> yeah, I want to do the transition, too. I just want to make an observation. There are only nine seats on the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. And until the uh, relatively radical uh, left-wing 
get their way and expand the court to 15 justices. There are only nine justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. African-Americans are 13% of the population, roughly one-ninth, 11% would be one-ninth. So we have our quota on the court. (laughs) If another Black person is appointed to the court in the interest of diversity, you will have vast overrepresentation of Blacks on the U.S. Supreme Court. Should that be an issue? I don't think so, frankly, myself personally. (laughs) There's overrepresentation of Catholics on the U.S. Supreme Court if we do a head count about the Catholics. Over time, there's been overrepresentation of Jews on the U.S. Supreme Court if we want to get down the cases in that way. Um, and all I'm doing by making these observations, and of course, overrepresentation of men, let me not overlook that. All I'm doing by making these observations is saying that the Supreme Court is not a representative institution and that if you turn it into one, it's going to be a mess. I am a widower who remarried four years ago to a somewhat younger woman, and I need life insurance. If someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, aging parent, or even a business partner, you need life insurance. Life insurance can give you peace of mind that if something happens to you, your loved ones would have a financial cushion to pay for things like rent, mortgage payments, loans, education costs, and everyday expenses. Having coverage through your job may not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more to properly provide for their families. Typically, life insurance gets more expensive as you age, so it's smart to get a policy sooner rather than later. Click on the link in the description or head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions about yourself. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Their licensed experts will help you understand your options and apply for a policy. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. Since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and placed $120 billion in coverage. Head to policygenius.com to get your free insurance quotes and see how much you could save. Yeah, I'd be interested to see how various writers in the business, brilliant people, would explain that Clarence Thomas doesn't count. You know, that he doesn't represent, quote, unquote, the black view. It'd be interesting to see them artfully explaining that. But yeah, with two, we would be overrepresented on the court. That's not how anybody would see it, though, except, you know, you, me and about 17 other people. But yeah, it's an interesting point. Well, I can see these people. Paul Butler, who's at the Georgetown Law Center, he's an African-American legal scholar, very well known, has written books about lots of stuff um, and is, you know, left. And uh I was about to say, there's not a black reading of the Constitution. And then I was hearing Brother Paul Butler in my, in my mind's eye, in my mind's ear, rebutting this claim. Of course, there is a black reading of the Constitution. Do you not know about Plessy versus Ferguson? Do you not know about Brown versus Board of Education? Are you mm-hmm. unaware of how the law has been a handmaiden of white supremacy and allowing for the domination of Black people from slavery on forward. Of course, there's a Black view of the Constitution. Read Thurgood Marshall's speech in Hawaii in 1987, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And I'm only saying this so people will know that I'm aware of the fact that there's a real argument over there. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's a dynamic country. There are more Hispanics than there are Blacks in this country right now. We can't let the tail wag the dog here. The Constitution is for everybody. It's not the place where we parse up our respective claims on the American uh, national project. It's the place where we figure out what the common law governing all of us is going to be. Of course, the interests of African-Americans need to be taken into account into that process. You don't think Jewish people can reflect the interest of African-Americans? I mean, really? 
uh, Louis Brandeis doesn't hasn't in his, you know etc. You know. So oh, this Butler essentialism, is. essentialism is the thing I'm against. Excuse me, John. I'm, I'm against racial essentialism. Mm-hmm. Paul Butler. Let's move on. He's fantastic. I just want to say, I think I've yeah. been on NPR like against him, and yet he's he's very very good. But what people like that never understand before we move on yeah. is that their view is mostly the view of black people who are intellectuals and or in the media. They don't realize that what they should be saying is this is what a black view of the Constitution should be. A lot of them actually seem to think that it really is a matter of is that you can take, you know, every black person in the country except for the occasional quizzling like us. And that is the view that any black person you grab from any barbecue, if you explain these things in you know normal terms, would agree with them. And it's just not true. It's this should be. The black view of the constitution but the way that person puts it is that it is and i think they really aren't aware that there's no is in cases like this that they they have frankly they have an oversimplified view of what black diversity is and of course they deny it they'd say there's plenty of ideological diversity in the black community but what they mean is within the confines of how they think they don't seem to understand that it's broader than that or they shove it aside when they say things like that it's disappointing to me yeah. they are uh if I follow you, uh, coastal uh, elitist who are um, adherents of a modern or even postmodern intellectual uh, posture that would be foreign to rank and file, working class, uh, church going, Bible thumping, uh, uh, black people who are extremely numerous in the inner cities of this country, in the rural areas of this country, in the southern region of this country, um, and whose views about transgender rights, you don't want to know those views. You you, you don't ask those people about that, because if they're honest with you, you're not going to like what they have to say about it, uh, and so on. Uh, So uh, is that authentic Blackness? What's authentically Black? Do I need a degree from an Ivy League university in order to be authentically black where I've, you know, imbibed the the, uh, critical race theoretic postmodern sensibility? If I'm a pastor in a storefront church in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, or Tuscaloosa, uh, or uh, Memphis, Tennessee, am I still really black? You know, I have never seen any of these people say it. They would never dare say it out loud or write it in print. They think they know better. What they Indeed. think about the people you're talking about and, you know, the transgender part, if you ask me, it, it's a shame. My views are not those views on the transgender issue. But in terms of what the Constitution means, in terms of what striving should mean, in terms of what racism means, those people's views are completely out of step with, frankly, I think a lot of quote unquote ordinary black folk. And what the intellectuals think is that they, they're smarter, that they have broader. No, they're not. It's not that they think they have broader horizons and therefore a more sophisticated understanding of these issues than that pastor. And they're never going to say it. I think only once have I seen this sort of person interacting with that other kind of person. And they were trying to pad it over by saying, no, my sister, no, my sister. But what what this woman was saying amidst all of the my sister and the hand gestures was I know more than you. I have broader horizons than you, and that's why I'm right about this issue. That's what it is. They just yeah. don't want to say it. And I disagree. I disagree. You can't dismiss the views of that broad a sector of any population as backwardness. There's real ideological diversity in the black community, far beyond the sorts of things that these coastal elites think of as, frankly, God's word. It's narrow. It really is narrow. And yet those very people listen to us and they think of us as saying that two plus two equals five. No, it's just not. It's just not the case. The historical irony is that Clarence Thomas is on the U.S. Supreme Court today because in 1991, during those closely fought confirmation hearings, Southern black Democrats voted to confirm under pressure from their black constituents in Alabama, in Georgia, Sam Nunn, Howell Heflin. These uh, people, members of the U.S. Senate who voted to confirm Clarence Thomas under pressure from their black constituents and over the heads of 
the black uh, commentators, law professors, uh, uh, opinion uh, journalists, and so on, all of whom were almost universally opposed to Thomas's appointment. I remember back then, and this was before I was, you know, in the commentator game, but I remember back then that uh, someone like me was supposed to think of Clarence Thomas as, as, as scum. That was the view of, you know, anything I read, anybody I talked to as a graduate student at Stanford. But then whenever I went home and listened to, you know, family members, listened to people even just on the street, what a lot of them thought was that Anita Hill was obsessing over something trivial. I'm not saying I agree with that, but they were more interested <laughs> in there being a black Supreme Court justice. They didn't they didn't see it the way all of the quote unquote smart people I knew saw it. I found that interesting at the time. And I know that all the people I knew then would say that they had broader horizons. They knew better. And also just about Clarence Thomas's opinions about affirmative action and the like. Everybody at, say, Stanford thought they knew better than the person who works at the cleaners or my aunt this or my friend that. And I find that a little arrogant, frankly. And folks, I am not condoning sexual harassment. That That is what's most interesting to me about that whole case. Nevertheless, I distinctly remember various people, including one with a PhD, come to think of it, I'm not gonna say who it was, because okay. they were complicated, but they thought that Anita Hill was making too much out of it. And that what was more important was that Clarence Thomas become a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. Okay, well, we could get into a lot of trouble if we go down this uh, feminist uh, rabbit hole, but I knew a lot of black women who said sexual harassment, uh, pubic hair on a Coke can, that's not sexual harassment. It's when he grabs your derriere. I heard that a lot. Yeah, that's that's sexual harassment. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, enough, enough. Uh, John, uh, what are you saying about well, why don't we put off the affirmative action cases to a, another discussion? Because we've gone on for a while here. Why don't we talk about Whoopi Goldberg or um, uh, yeah. um, Joe Rogan? I think with Whoopi, it was um, she was making this clinical case that everybody involved was white. When... Tell people what she did, just for those who are not informed. Yeah, um, she was making a point during you know the crisscrossy kind of conversation that you have on the View that the Holocaust, that Nazis persecution of Jews, wasn't about race. The, the topic was the, bo the book Mouse, which um, has been banned in, in, in one state, I forget which state, uh, one state has banned the book Mouse about the Holocaust, a graphic novel from libraries. And Whoopi Goldberg was saying that the, um, it, th that's not right because the Holocaust was not about race. It was white people doing something to white people and that it was quite horrific, but that it wasn't about race. I think Whoopi was forgetting, or maybe doesn't know, I don't know, I don't know her, <laughs> that Jews were seen as a different race by people who were persecuting them back then. But what she sees from today's vantage point, which makes a certain sense, is that it was a white on white kind of crime. So she was just making the point that Mouse isn't about race because it was man's inhumanity to man she was just making that point that point maybe is a little ignorant yeah and i think she could have been reminded you know jews were thought of as you know subhuman by many people back then still are in some quarters and therefore it's maybe splitting hairs too much to say that it's not about race but it was a taxonomic point and now she's suspended for two weeks from her show and i think that that suspension is as inappropriate as the suspension of Elia Shapiro. Okay, she should be a smack on the hand. You know, tell her, Whoopi, you, you're you're missing something very now important. Now she's apologized, here. hasn't she? And she apologized, and it meant nothing. We're at a point in our culture where an apology has no effect. What kind of people are we becoming? You know, you apologize and it doesn't work, and that's somehow supposed to be progressive. No, I think that it, it, it the idea that when it comes to race issues or even in this case, anti-Semitism, an apology doesn't work in any case? No, I don't, I don't think that way. You're right. It, it, there is a kind of playing with words, uh, a kind of what does the word race mean? What does racism mean? I mean, there's no doubt that the Nazis thought that the Jews were a different race. They, they had racial purity as one of their motives for shoveling people in the pits and machine gunning them and putting them in gas chambers and ovens. They, they thought that they were exterminating a race a lesser race of people in doing so 
So her failure to appreciate the racial perceptions of the Nazis who persecuted a horrific crime against humanity is unfortunate and reflects her lack of sophistication and subtlety to be sure. And she had to know or should have known. <laughs> I have many Jewish friends <laughs> to tell them, no, you're white. Forget about it. It's to start a fight yeah. with, with, with good reason. With good reason, there's a granular specificity to their historical experience, which doesn't get uh, erased by subsuming them into, quote unquote, white people. Right. Unquote. So um, that, but that the question is, does she deserve this kind of sanction yeah. for making an ignorant comment? And I think, no, that's that's very post 2020. You know, that's cancel culture going way too far. I mean, she didn't do anything malicious. She wasn't denying the horror of it. She wasn't minimizing the horror of it. She was just making a classificational point that was a little ignorant. She doesn't deserve to be harmed. She doesn't deserve to be shamed in the public square for that. It's a, this prosecutorial mood, I think it's more recreational than constructive. And I, I feel sorry for her on this. And she apologized. The apologies were a little bit incoherent. I don't think she quite understands what she said, but still she expressed contrition twice and still was put in, put in stocks. No, this isn't right. Well, I think it's a superficial kind of morality uh, because it's the morality of spoken words as opposed to the morality of uh, embraced values. Mm -hmm. I should mm -hmm. be mad at you, quote unquote, if you have the wrong values. If you don't believe in the equality of women, if you think that white people are literally superior, if you say Jews will not replace us, I should be mad at you about that. If you use a word that has the connotation or association in some people's mind of the wrong values, but that cannot be demonstrated to have been your own embrace of those values, you simply use a word. I don't know whether or not I'm going to be mad at you. Why should I be mad at you for saying the wrong thing? I mean, you know, a faux pas. I'm, I'm going to uh, put you in the docks, as you put it, for a faux pas, for misspeaking. You know, mm -hmm. that makes you a racist. Is Whoopi Goldberg an anti-Semite? I mean, I doubt that seriously. Her name is Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, I doubt that seriously. I, you know. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what she thinks about the Israel and Palestinian thing, but people can be on either side of that and not be anti-Semites. Many of my Jewish friends are on one side or the other of that one. So, so this brings us to the N-word, though, John. Is the I just want to add, yes, to see Schindler's List and to think of yourself as seeing a story about white people doing hideous things to other white people should not be considered a major tort should not be considered abusive, should not be considered something that makes someone a sinister human being. If you see that in Schindler's List, you can be told, you know, those people thought of those other white people as a different race. That's hideous too. But she's being pilloried for what I think is an understandable kind of ignorance. And I don't, I don't get what the point of that is beyond well, the joy I mean, of being... People know so little history. They know so little American history. They don't know what the Dreyfus Affair was about. They, they, they don't know anything about early 20th century European anti-Semitism. You know, they, I, unless they're very, very well educated, they don't know. So it seems to me easy enough that a person uh, could make the error that she made. I know a great many Jewish people who feel that way about this, too. Many Jewish people who don't like the flavor of what she said, but don't think that she should be... Be, be fired or suspended. And I don't get the feet, the Jewish people I've seen saying this are not people who like to throw bombs. They're not people who stand outside of mainstream thought. My sense is that it's a pretty ordinary view among Jewish people, of, uh, at least the educated Jewish people I know, that Whoopi Goldberg is being you know, pilloried unjustly. My sense is that that's not an uncommon view on this. But the superficial morality of spoken word etiquette versus the genuine morality of a thick, historically informed engagement with important questions of, of policy, of state, of, of ethics. Uh, and I think that's what's at stake here. And his use of the N-word uh, 
years ago. Uh, I'm I'm not sure I'm fully aware of the facts about the Joe Rogan uh, incident. Joe Rogan, some tapes have surfaced. Joe Rogan has been controversial because uh, he has views and has had guests on his show about vaccines that are uh, seen by some as um, anti-vax or whatever. And uh, uh, there's been some controversy at Spotify about his views about the vaccine. And so now, lo and behold, in the wake of that controversy, some tapes have surfaced in which Joe Rogan is heard using the N-word. Do you know anything more about that? I, I want to just suggest the surfacing of these tapes is not an accident. The surfacing of these tapes at this moment is uh, an effort to bring down Joe Rogan. Uh, yeah. So. Um, um, musicians have been pulling out of Spotify, you know, in protest of Spotify's having harboring him. And I think the singer India Ari um, put together a, 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 a reel, so to speak, of Joe Rogan episodes where he used the N word. And the truth is, I just recently took in this story. And I, there are two things I don't do that normal people do. I do not watch late night shows. I don't watch Jimmy Kimmel and all yeah. those. I have, and I also I don't listen to podcasts. I seem to do quite a few of them lately, yeah. but I really don't listen. So I've never heard Joe Rogan. To me, he's a delightful character actor from News Radio, the sitcom, which I have watched through three times all the way through. I don't know Joe Rogan after that, but I know what goes on on the show. And this is a little premature, Glenn, because I haven't studied it. But from what's been said. What people are calling attention to is Rogan having used the word in imitation or in quotation. It's not that he was on the show saying the problem with niggers is that they da 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 da. Yeah, you just used the word, by the way, John. I sure did, and I stand by it because we're black. We can do it. But he is was not doing that. He's a 21st century, you know, person. He was joshingly imitating comedians like Red Fox and using it in quotation marks. Now, if that's not true, we have to have another conversation, but he wasn't lobbing, the, is that the word? Yeah, he wasn't lobbing the word. He was use, He was referring to the word or imitating people who use the word yeah. the way until about 10 minutes ago, many white kids would you know, chant their hip hop lyrics. To me, there's a huge difference between the two things. And as I've said and written often, I think it's absurd that we've gotten to the point that we're treating it as a taboo sequence of sounds, as if, you know, we were, you know, worshiping some sun god or something. And it should have no effect on his career. Maybe he wouldn't choose to do those things now. But frankly, when he was doing it then, it wasn't hurting anybody. And this business of not attending to the difference between using it and referring to it is childish. And once again, we don't need it. I don't I don't see why it's necessary, although there's a certain kind of black person now who claims to be deeply injured whenever that sequence of sounds is uttered for any reason. I think it's a pose. So, yeah, I'm, I don't like this one at all. Now, we can Neither talk about I. Joe Rogan and the COVID, but this this won't do. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with Joe Rogan and the COVID either. I think people can have their views about about that. And I think the issue is to what's the scientific evidence. If he was saying something that was demonstrably wrong as a matter of science and he was propagating false information, that would be one thing. Uh, but there's a debate. There was a debate about masking. It's an ongoing debate. There's a debate about the efficacy of lockdowns. It's an ongoing debate. There's a debate about the consequences of mass jabbing. It's an ongoing debate. There's a man called Alex Berenson. He, he is a well-informed vax critic, skeptic out there. He can exist. I mean, rebut him is the way that you deal with that. You, you don't, uh, you don't uh, burn him at the stake because he had a view about I mean, the, in the fullness of time, we're going to learn a lot about policy responses in the uh, wake of this pandemic, which in retrospect proved to be wrong. Nobody knew that Andrew Cuomo was killing thousands of people by the decisions that he made about what happens to people coming out of hospitals, going to nursing homes and so forth and so on. Hindsight is 2020 kind of thing like that. Um, but I have an observation. Do you know this book by James Scott, the Yale political scientist called weapons of the week? Uh, it, it's, no. it's a study of how it is that dominated peoples can fight back surreptitiously. I, I mean, I, I think this uh, policing of the spoken sounds nigger and saying you can't say that is a pathetic 
expression of weakness. It's petulant. It's, it's like grabbing the microphone from a speaker whose arguments you just can't bear to hear. It, it's, there's no power in it whatsoever. There's no real power. There's no wealth in it. There, mm-hmm. There's no entrepreneurship in it. There's no educational mastery in it. There, there's no fixing any broken family in it. There's, there's no solving a crime problem in it. All it is is throwing a tantrum. I'm weak. I'm black. You said the N-word. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's pathetic. It is. It's performed delicacy. And there's been such an uptick in that on that word over the past about 15 years. And I just don't get how anybody can say they're a strong person and engage in that performance of allowing white people that power. People are going to keep on uttering it in, you know, for various reasons. And we've got this popular music that's full of it. And you decide that anytime you hear this word said by anybody but a black man from the street, you're going to, you know, go crawling into a corner. It's a performance. It's not real. Nobody cognitively whole truly feels that way. It's I'm something sure. that black people teach each other, and it really needs to stop. There are sure you things. We have other things to do. Go ahead. Yeah, no, we're going to conclude. I just want to reiterate, reiterate something you said earlier, which is we are not talking about the use of the word as a slur where you call someone an N-I-G-G-E-R, like you call them a K-I-K-E, or you call them an S-B-I-C, or you call them an M-I-C-K. We're not saying it. Yeah, and there's a We're kind not approving of, of the use of the word in that way. And the damnedest thing is that there's a kind of person who will listen to what you and I are saying and say that they're condoning the use of the N-word. They're condoning the use of the N-word. Actually pretending to think that that's what we're saying. God, that one makes me sick. You know, you shouldn't have to say what you just said. But their idea is it's more this idea of not realizing that your view isn't the only one. Their idea is that it's absolutely certain and, you know, just beyond any kind of conversation that to utter those sounds in sequence is always wrong. There can be no questioning of that. So everything we just said is condoning the use of the N-word. No, we're talking about there being a difference that one must attend to. And anybody who pretends that what we're doing here is condoning people walking around calling each other, no, is condoning a white person calling us that is feigning stupidity out of some sense that there's some sort of beauty in that moral pose. Black people should not be taught to feign being stupid. And that is what's going on with this new conception of the N-word. It's one of the it, this self-imposed dumbness on that truly dismays me. Perform delicacy. We ought to put that one in the, uh, in the dictionary. Let's keep that. <laughs> <laughs> John McWhorter. Signing off, Glenn Show. This one's a uh, wrap. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you, Glenn. Let's do affirmative action next time. Right on.